Hey, this is Jack from Musings of an ADD Mind and Kinetta and Jack Save the World, both podcasts. And you were listening to Keeping the Towel with my boy Ant. Peace world, easy world. It's your man Ant Boogie. Don't worry about the name. Get used to the voice. And it is another episode of Keeping the Towel. And thank you for rocking with me and being in the mix with me once again. Ladies and gentlemen, you have joined this podcast. You've turned this on for a particular reason. And not because of my voice, but because... You're here to go and be nosy and learn something. And yes, we're going to make sure you get that time at this moment. Ladies and gentlemen, we are now embarking on one of my favorite times of this show. And that is the Why I Kept My Towel series Father's Day edition. I'm always excited to do this so I get a chance to speak with some fathers who can go ahead and just be raw and tell the truth about their lives and also their journey in fatherhood and i got an incredible man who is on the mix with me i am grateful to have him here y'all this dude is another podcaster he has his own podcast and i'm telling you it's pretty dope because he got like two of them he's doing he has one musings of the add mind which i find to be quite interesting and he has another one with his good friend kenyatta and it is kenyatta and jack saves the world so ladies and gentlemen introducing my good man who I enjoy talking to, Mr. Jack Robinson. Jack Robinson, are you in the building, sir? I am in the building. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the invite. Yeah, my man is here. He is here. He is here. And I'm grateful to have him here. So, y'all, we're going to go ahead and talk to Jack about his life, what he has to, what he had to deal with in his life, and also in his time of fatherhood and what that has done for him and to him. So let's go ahead and do it. So, Jack, this is how it goes. I need you to get your hands wrapped, get your gloves on, get your mouthpiece in your mouth, in your mouth, and also get your grind guard on. Make your way to the ring. Ladies and gentlemen, go ahead and grab a seat and sit around this ring. It is Ant Boogie and Jack, and we are going to have our sparring session. Ladies and gentlemen, the round, the session has officially started. Let's get it. Let's get it. Let's get it. All right, Jack, let's go ahead. And hitting this time machine, and let's dial it back to 1970. And you go ahead and tell us where did it all start for the inception of Jack Rob? Well, it started a, a night filled with, I'm sure, playing cards and beer for my dad in Indianapolis, Indiana. And nine long months later, I, I popped out to bless the world with, with my appearance. See, when I was about two days old, my dad had to fly to Arizona because he was in the Air Force. And about a month later, my mom and I flew to Arizona. I was the oldest of three kids. And when I was one, my dad got stationed in Korea. So my mom and I moved back to Indiana. And then he came back and we moved to South Carolina. And then I had a little brother. And we moved to Indiana and I had a little sister. And then we moved to Texas and then we moved to Oklahoma and then... We never left Oklahoma. There's a lot of messed up things in Oklahoma, but I love Oklahoma. It's my home, and I love the University of Oklahoma football team. And if you try to tell me anything different, I'm I'm not going to be happy with you. Go Sooners. <laughs> That's right. That is right. Although last year was a bit rough for us. Um, I'm not going to lie. It, it, it was, it, it's not what we've been used to over the past 20-something years, but, you know, that happened. So... <sighs> Growing up, I kind of have what I call like two childhoods. I had pre-divorce childhood with my parents and then after divorce, 
And before the divorce, um, my mom was basically a stay-at-home mom. Um, even though I was Gen X, there is still a certain point where I was sort of more of a latchkey kid than others. But it wasn't as bad as a lot of my other fellow Gen Xers. But on the other hand, I did have, you know, some responsibilities put on me at a younger age that most people don't. If you're unfamiliar with being a, living the military life on base, your yards get inspected to make sure they're mowed. So at age seven, my dad was going TDY over the summer and I had to learn how to mow the yard when I was seven years old. Wow. And strangely enough, when he came back, I still had to mow the yard. Weird how that worked out. (laughs) (laughs) My dad was not like a horrible man or a horrible father, um, but he he did have, you know, some flaws. He was definitely a yeller. If you uh, made a mistake, you were going to hear about it. My dad was not afraid to spank, but I will say it wasn't, you know, an abusive sense where it was, you know, 5, 10, 15 hits with the belt. Generally, if he said you were going to get one spanking, you got one spanking and and that was it. But looking back, I just kind of have the feeling that my dad didn't necessarily know how to be with smaller kids, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And uh, once again, as we talked about, like my dad would, he knew how to work on cars and stuff and he would want us to help him. But what he really wanted was for me to just hand him tools. He never actually showed me how to do the thing that he was doing. Mm. And so then he couldn't understand why, you know, 20 minutes into changing the brakes, I wanted to go hang out with my friends. And he's like, well, I want to show you how to do this. And it's like, yeah, but you're not really showing me how to do it. I'm just handing you tools. And then when I hand you the wrong one, because I don't know the name of it, you get irritated with me. (laughs) I'm sure lots of people have dads that are, you know, that way. And um, also, so before my parents divorced, you know, it wasn't like a horrible life. You know, my dad did have, like I said, did have some of those issues. Um, But when my parents got a divorce, that is where things really sort of changed for us as a family. My siblings and myself lived with my mom. She had custody. And the way the divorce settlement was sort of written, my mom was going to school full time. And so my dad basically bought a house and he paid the mortgage and utilities. And then he gave a certain amount of money towards each kid. But that was like all he would do. He'd be like, well, I'm, you know, I'm living up to my end of the divorce decree. Now we still went to his, went to see him every other weekend because that's how it was done in the 80s. But With my mom going to school full time, she did not have a job. And so the only money that my mom got was from, so we were effectively living off of roughly, you know, seven to $8,000 a year, which, you know, even in the eighties was well above or well below the poverty line. Yeah. A year. Yeah. A year. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Had, had my dad not been, you know, paying the mortgage and the utilities, we probably would have ended up uh, homeless. I would imagine. Now, my mom was, you know, going to school because she wanted to get her college degree so that she could support us better. But what ended up happening was I sort of became um, like the de facto guy that ran the house. I uh, became responsible for cooking all the dinner, making sure laundry was done. The house was clean. You know, my little brother and sister did their homework. That was a lot for, you know, kind of a 15-year-old to take on. 
the one side of that was positive is I love cooking, love cooking to this day. I don't know if I call myself a pit master per se, but I'm at least pit competent. <laughs> I make a mean pulled pork. Okay. That's all that matters. That's all that matters on Memorial Day and 4th of July. That's all that matters, man. That is true. That, that That is, I think, the only reason people come over to my house. Uh, there you go. Is for that reason. <laughs> <laughs> but so, yeah, my dad, uh, just sort of an example. If we needed new school clothes after the divorce, my dad would be like, well, that's why I give your mom that money is so she can, you know, get you school clothes. But my mom was a little too proud and she wouldn't go and get then food stamps, now SNAP benefits. And so that money that my dad gave basically bought groceries for us. So I went from ninth grade to when I graduated high school and I never once got new school clothes after ninth grade, unless it was, I mowed yards over the summer. And if I bought something for me, you know, then I got it. But otherwise I just didn't get it. I guess it's probably a good thing that at that age, I was just so busy trying to go to school and do all of the other things. I didn't realize how bad off we were. That did lead to uh, some issues, you know, with my dad looking back on it, because I just sort of felt like, man, you kind of, you kind of abandoned us in a way. But I also don't know if he realized we were as bad off as we were, if that makes sense. But I can't really go back and discuss it with my father now because my dad passed away in uh, 2003. So it's not something that I can go back and um, um, after my dad died, um, I had a, a gentleman that was roughly the same age as my dad and he was kind of like a mentor to me. And he realized that I had sort of these issues with my dad. He suggested I write a letter to my dad sort of explaining stuff. So that's what I did. And it was like two and a half pages front to back. And so after I did that, he suggested, he said, here's what we'll do. We'll meet, you know, at a coffee shop, have some breakfast. You read that letter to me as if I'm your father. Mm. This mentor, just to say that to you, I want you to write this letter and read it to me. What went through your head when you hear somebody just say, read it to me like your dad's in front of you. This young Jack is hearing this. What went through your head at that time? <laughs> Part of me is like, this is kind of crazy it just seemed really different because you know it's not something that i had even ever considered before or even thought about but i kind of realized it was probably pretty important without going too much into this gentleman he was a really good mentor when i needed at that time in my life and he had experienced some things in his life and so even though it felt kind of odd i knew that it was probably something important to do but were you hesitant of doing it? Were there moments you're like, oh, nah, I'm good? Or was it he told you and then you just gave it? All right, I'll just give it a shot. It was more of a, I'll give it a shot. But as I was writing the letter, because it's not like I just, you know, went home and just, you know, started writing. It took me a little bit to write that out because you are dealing with you know, a lot of emotional baggage about stuff that happened. Because I think he realized that. I was mad at my dad for what happened after the divorce and that for me to be a better me, I needed to confront that. It was really powerful, <laughs> you know, to do that because it did, it forced me to, you know, confront some things that happened. And then as you're writing the letter, it's like, well, is this too personal? Do I do this? No, this is important. I need to go ahead and, you know, include this. Mm. And so that's what I did. And so we met. You know, we had the breakfast and the coffee and I read him the letter. You know, like I told you before, he, he like legit 
that's my dad, you know, he was like, I'm, I'm sorry I did that to you. I apologize. Really? <laughs> and even though it wasn't my, yeah, you, you know, even though it wasn't my dad, it's still in the moment. It really seemed, it was just so important to hear that. Even though it wasn't my dad, it was still emotional as if it was my dad, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And so I was able to forgive my dad for, you know, that stuff. Who knows if that man wouldn't have done that for me, that mentor, perhaps maybe I would still have anger issues with my dad 20 years later. And I really feel like he freed me of that. You're putting words to paper. You're at a desk, pen and pad, and you're just writing this stuff down where there are moments like, all right, now I don't want to say that. Or as you said, there was just some things that had to be put in there because it was like, yeah, I got to get this off my chest. As you're doing that and you read some of it back, was that the first time you read it, read it to that person? Or did you actually read the, the letter to yourself before you met your mentor? I had read it to myself because, like I said, there were things where it was like, well, do I want to include this? And so maybe I would write a little further and I was like, no, I need to include that. And so I would, you know, I had I had a couple of edits on on the letter. And, um, you know, if it's something any of your listeners ever decide to do, even if it's just write the letter, try not to hold back. It's incredibly liberating to just get the stuff out, even even the bad stuff. Um, it's surprising what writing it down and then in my case, getting to actually, you know, read it to somebody. It's incredibly freeing and liberating. Yes. So after you read this to your mentor, your mentor says, yes. I'm sorry. As if this is your dad. You leave from there. What do you do next? Because that's a very vulnerable time, a very vulnerable moment you opened yourself up to. Well, you know, I drove home and got home and talked to my wife about what happened. Even though in my story, we haven't necessarily got there. I, I have been married at this point for, well, at that point, it hadn't been 30 years. But now I've almost been married for 30 years. And well, thank you. <laughs> and so obviously my wife was, you know, sort of the first person that I talked to about it. When wow. you told um, your when you told your wife this, what did she say? Well, my wife is a hugger and a crier. Yeah. So she got emotional and then, you know, came over and just gave me a big hug. You know, we talked about it some more and I need to be a better dad for my kids. Even though, once again, it's skipping forward a little bit. I, I too, was a yeller because you tend to um, take on the traits of your parents. Uh -huh. And my dad yelled, so I yelled. Right. I made a conscious effort not to do that. Did I always succeed? No. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> was I much better? Yeah. Yeah. And my kids will tell you that there is a distinct shift in when I no longer yelled at them, wow. you know, if they did something wrong. That also taught me that one of the most important things you can do as a father is if you realize that in doing something with your kids, disciplining them or whatever, maybe you were too harsh or you jumped to the wrong conclusion about something and then you got the full story and you realized you were wrong, apologize to your kids. And that was one of the main things that I changed after that. If I realized that I had made a mistake I needed to own up to that to my kids and apologize because if I wanted my kids to be adults that apologized, 
and owned up to their mistakes, they needed to see me do it because your positive traits also get picked up on by your kids. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So that, that, that was just what I wanted to add to that. So it did doing that with, you know, the letter and all of that. When I say it was one of the more powerful things in my life, I'm, I really mean that I'm not just, you know, blowing smoke up your ass. Right. Wow. So Jack, let's fast forward this a little. Meet this beautiful lady. You two some way, somehow don't know how, how it happens. Cause I wasn't born at, I don't know nothing about that, but she comes up to you and says the words, Jack, I'm pregnant. What went through your head? Well, like most teenagers, when that happened, I was shocked. <laughs> you know? How old were you exactly when that came into play? Uh, well, let's just say that I was 17. <laughs> All right. My man. <laughs> so 17-year-old uh, Jack here, I'm pregnant. Yeah, but I decided that I was going to be the father that kid needed. I was never not going to be there for him or her. I obviously didn't know at that, you know, at that time. But I decided I was going to be there, regardless of what happened with her and I. I was always going to be there for that kid, no matter how difficult it was. And you made this conscious decision at that young age of seventeen. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, you were a different breed, buddy. It, <laughs> well, thank you. You know, got jobs and bought diapers and formula, tried to do what I could do. And, you know, I was never one to, first of all, let me say this. I hate it when people use the expression for a dad of babysitting your kids. I have never once babysat my kids. They're my kids. I parent my kids. If my wife or at the time girlfriend needed to go to the store or needed to do whatever, you know what? It took two of us to do that. I was going to do whatever it took to raise my kids. So I don't babysit my kids. I parent my kids. So I love that. I just need to get that off my chest. I love that. I feel that dads, that's not something that is taken serious enough. And it always irks me when I see people on social media, like thanking their husband because they needed to go to the store and their husband watched the kids for him. And I'm like, no, that shouldn't be a big deal. Mm. <laughs> that's just one of my big pet peeves. I understand. Um, I understand that. But yeah, so I, that was just something that I decided. Graduated high school. She was a year behind me. She graduated high school. I joined the Oklahoma National Guard because I realized, hey, I got responsibilities. Uh, the Oklahoma National Guard at that time would pay for your tuition if you went to a state school. And I figured that it was a good time to and a good way to learn what I wanted to do in life. Um, I mentioned that I enjoyed cooking and I wanted to be a chef. And at that time frame, there weren't a whole lot of culinary schools throughout the U.S. like there are now, and they were pretty expensive. And so I used my time in the Oklahoma National Guard to go to Army cooking school so that when I went to culinary school to be a chef, it would be half as long and half as much. Mm. And so I did that. And then as we were getting married, I realized, okay, I have to have an actual job. We have to have, you know, health insurance and all of these things. And so even though I was, I don't even think I was 21 yet. I was like, I, so I went active duty and uh, I served for three years in the U.S. Army. Can't say that it was all great, but, you know, I had fun little four and a half months in Kuwait whole totally different story but um because i wanted to support my family and it was during that time when i was in the army cooking 
where I realized I don't like cooking outside of the house. <laughs> right? <laughs> I'm actually glad that it worked out that way because it would have stunk to have gone to culinary school and had all of that student loan debt. And then a year into it, you're like, oh my God, I hate this. I have to get out of this because then I would have been trapped. And so, uh, you know, I got to serve my country. I still learned a lot of important skills um, that when I cook now, I'm, you know, still able to use. And I don't, I don't regret my time doing that because like I said, I think it worked out for the best. And it was when I was active duty that I became uh, a father for a second time when my son was born. So before we and- go on to that part, when your wife finally pushed out this bread out the oven... First time, and right. you have this little human being, 10 fingers, 10 toes, and they place this little baby in your arms, in your hands. Jack, tell me what that was like. My heart melted. That should change you. <laughs> you know, was I nervous? Yeah. Was I scared? Yeah. Did I instantly fall in love with this little person? Yeah, I certainly did. Although, to be fair, all of my kids were big. My oldest child... While she didn't weigh much, she was over two feet long when she was born. Gee, that's a tall kid. Yeah. And then um, my son was 10 and a half pounds when he was born. And then my youngest daughter, she was nine and a half pounds. <laughs> so uh, they definitely ate healthy in the womb. Tell you that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, apparently, I don't I don't make small babies, but she kept having them with me. So I guess it <laughs> wasn't too bad on her end, right? <laughs> Oh, man. So, Jack, this little baby that you have, now you're this young man, this young lady. You have this little baby, and this baby is growing. First from on its back to now crawling to now walking and talking. Jack, what is this process that you, what is this process like to you as you're watching it unfold before you? It's kind of amazing because, you you know, you, you have this little creature in creature, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> And they cry and they're hungry and they don't know how to express themselves. Right. And the only way they can let you know is if they're unhappy with something is to cry. And, you you know, you have to figure out what's going on. And uh, to be perfectly honest with you, as a guy growing up, I did not spend a lot of time around babies. Right. (laughs) So for me, it was all. All a complete mystery. I had to be shown how to, you know, this is how you change a diaper. This is how you feed with the bottle. And this is how you warm up the bottle and, you know, all of that stuff. And then you watch them grow. And then when they start smiling and laughing, you know, a baby laugh. A baby laughing is one of the best sounds that you can hear on earth, in my personal opinion. It just brings joy to me when you hear a baby laugh. And to watch her You know, go from this little thing that's completely dependent on you to crawling around and getting in stuff. Um, (laughs) You know, when your kid is two years old and your soon-to-be mother and father-in-law just bought a new TV, which was a tube TV, and then you um, get a call from your girlfriend that uh, your kid just poured a cup of milk down the back of their brand new TV. Amazing. <laughs> you know, you're just like, oh my gosh. It worked out though. My father in law took the back of the TV off, dried everything off, went back to the store, and said, I don't know what happened. It just quit working and they uh, replaced it. So <laughs> sweet. That's a blessing of having a girl. 
Blessing of having her. <laughs> she can't right? do no wrong. Do no wrong. So, Jack, here it is now. Second time. Jack, I'm pregnant. And then now pushes out another one. Another bread out the oven. Yeah. And another little bouncing baby. Ten fingers, ten toes. This feeling, this atmosphere, like, at this time. Well, with my, you know, with the son, I was I was excited because it's like, man, I got a son. <laughs> I was, don't get me wrong, I, I'm quite happy and love my daughters. It's not, oh, I had to have a boy. But I was just like, ah, yes, a boy. I can, I can have him love all of the stuff I love, like football and science fiction and all of this stuff <laughs> in... You know, and I was, I was just so, just so happy to um, have him. And then I realized that having a baby, everyone thinks when you have a baby that's that large, you know, 10 and a half pounds, babies that are that large are actually more helpless than smaller babies, right? Mm. His head was roughly the size of Andre the Giant when he was born. Holy crap. <laughs> yeah, it, it was big. And uh, it, it took him several years to grow into that thing. So it's everything that a normal baby does, like a baby, say, holds their head up at one month. Well, he needed two months because he had this giant head. Normal baby rolls over, whatever, two and a half months. He needed like four because he just had all of this extra sort of girth that he had to uh, deal with. So it took him longer to do everything. So that was not necessarily what I was expecting at the time. But he was just always such a good-natured kid. He went to bed easy, and he, he was just a, a great kid to have, and he just sort of sat there. Of course, as an adult, uh, he was diagnosed as having Asperger's, which we should have known because he was the most Sheldon-esque person from Big Bang Theory that I've ever met. So the reason we didn't pick up on that is shocking to me. But he's really good at sort of masking uh, masking that him and I just always had good times. We play video games, and although one time I did come home from work and he had he was helping me on a video game that I only had the last level to beat, and he accidentally deleted the game. Boy, but what are you gonna what are you gonna do when a six year old does that? You <laughs> ground right? him until he's eight. What do you mean what you do? <laughs> Come on. Um, but word of advice, when they are older and you do have to get ground them from a gaming system, I have found that the best thing to do is to actually just take the power cords there because then they have to still look at the gaming system, but they can't do anything about it. There you go. Sounds good to me. Right. Jack, now you you get it again. Jack, I'm pregnant is another little one, a baby girl. From the two that you learned, what did this third child what was it that you were able to take from the two that you have and now bring it into this into this third time? She was the youngest in the girl, so she was therefore I learned that she was my princess. Ah. <laughs> no, in all, in all seriousness, um, there is a nine year gap between my oldest and my youngest. Okay. And things that, you know, 19, 20, 21 year old me thought were important nine years later with her. I realized weren't important. Like what? Um, uh, for example, if we went somewhere, if I was going to the store, my oldest kid, you know, we always had to make sure that she was, you know, dressed because we were going out and everything had to be, you know, perfect and yada, yada, yada. With my youngest kid, as long as she had clothes on, I didn't care. 
right? If she was wearing her Halloween outfit and it was June, she was going to the store dressed as a princess or Spider-Man or whatever she was wearing at that time because it just wasn't worth like the struggle of kids have their own personality and some, they just don't necessarily want to do stuff sometimes and they can't express what it is they don't want to do. And I just discovered, you know what? We're going to the grocery store. Who cares if she's dressed in a princess costume or right. Spider-Man? She actually preferred superhero costumes. Uh, <laughs> you know, so I just felt that it didn't it didn't matter why, right? Because she was going to put it back on when we got home anyway. So why go through the whole thing? Just let her go to the store like that. Right. And, um, of course, uh, my youngest daughter, um, she did have a lot of health issues. Uh, she was actually born having an asthma attack, which, yes, that can happen. And then she had quite a few other uh, medical issues that we had to deal with. So she did spend a lot of time sick. And um, she has, like, 12 or 13 hospitalizations for asthma. But she's also... She roots for the underdog. You know, we we joke that she doesn't march to the beat of a different drummer because she's in a different instrument section entirely, which is great. One of the things I love about her, but she will always, always, always stand up for the person that no one else is standing up for. And she's always been that way. And that's one of the one of the things about her that brings me like the most joy, I think, because it's rare to see people that legitimately their nature is to fight for the underdog, or at least in my experience. Your daughter, she had an ordeal where she a fire happened, broke out. Um, yes. Take me into that time. Okay. Um, I, I just want to let people know there is going to be some graphic uh, descriptions in here, but there's, there's just no way around it. It was my wife's birthday in 2022. And I am actually in my recording studio recording with Kenyatta, but I can hear my wife on the phone. And I thought, Oh, cool. The kids called her for her birthday and I didn't have to remind them. And, uh, my son was in the air force and he was stationed in Colorado Springs and my, and Emily, my youngest, absolutely loved Colorado Springs and he's like hey I own my own house got a spare bedroom come move in with me so she did and so they live in you know Colorado Springs we're in Oklahoma so I finished recording I go in there uh, into the into the dining room where my wife's on the phone and as soon as I walk in there I could tell something was wrong and she said it's M first thought okay she's had an asthma attack so I was like have an asthma attack she in the er and she goes she's in the er but it wasn't an asthma attack she was in a fire that of course my heart sunk you aren't expecting that i grew up in the 80s watching action adventure movies and so in my head automatically i start seeing you know some action adventure thing going off with her which is not something that you want to picture with your kid and so what happened was she was making candles and the wax caught fire and exploded or exploded caught fire and so when that happened um her right forearm caught fire and then her right thigh caught fire mm. 
And she was wearing two hoodies that day because it had snowed and she was cold, which probably made her help with her arm because it gave it just like one more layer that the fire had to go through. So even though she still got third degree burns on her right arm, it could have been third degree burns. There is something called a fourth degree burn. And so they do think that the double hoodie probably helped in that regard. And then her thigh got burned two separate ways. The fire from her jeans burned it, but then she also had wax on down on her thigh and the hot wax doesn't go away. And it was basically the heat from, you know, this 200 plus degree wax is melting down into her thigh, the heat going down like that. So that was also third degree burn. And there's a whole section of her thigh now that the, uh, uh, she doesn't have any nerve endings and she can't feel anything. And so she immediately stopped, dropped and rolled. But apparently that and porcelain tiles don't work very well. So it wasn't going, the fire wasn't going out. So she hopped up, ran outside and dove in the snow. She had, um, shoveled a walkway for her dog and so she had this pile of snow and she went and dove in that snow and she pushed her body into it and that put the fire out and then she was about to um and she says she's like i i don't she's like i may have passed out i don't know her dog ellie kind of licked her on the face and that brought her back out of it so she got up came in called 911 waited for the fire department to get there and the ambulance they took her to the ER, and then that's where my wife was talking to her when I came in, send her by helicopter to the burn unit in Denver or by ambulance. So this puts you in a weird situation as a parent, right? Because if it's in a helicopter, that means it's really bad because they have to get her there quickly, right? Right. And if it's by ambulance, it's not as bad because they can take her there by you know, by a vehicle. So then it's a hour drive versus, you know, the 20 minute helicopter ride. So a, a part of you're like, well, I wanted to take her by helicopter. So she gets there the fastest, but then that means she's much worse in her shape. Um, so, but she, they decided that it was by ambulance. So she went there. She doesn't really remember much from leaving the ER to getting into her room at the uh, burn unit in Colorado, uh, sorry, in Denver. And then, of course, this is setting off a chain of events for my wife and I, because now we have to get to Colorado Springs, but we have to find someone to watch our dogs, <laughs> call into work, you know, figure that out. And then my wife wanted her mom to go with us. So it ended up being uh, myself, my wife and my mother-in-law that went up there because uh, uh, my father-in-law has also passed away. And so we went up there, but I think my wife realized that she was going to need her mom to be her mom <laughs> at times. Being with somebody that is in a burn unit ICU is incredibly rough because the treatment for burns is every bit as painful as actually being on fire. Skin grafts are no joke. Uh, they basically get a cheese knife and they just slice off your skin with the cheese knife and then they run it through a mesher and then they cut out your old skin and then they put this new meshed skin on top of it and they have to mesh it because otherwise, you know, it will want to shrink and it has to cover this expanded area. 
but they can't sew or staple your grafted skin in. It just sort of sets there and then they wrap it with the dressings and they staple the dressings to you. And it's not like, it's not like, you know, like a little swing line stapler. These are like the big industrial size staples because nothing can move. So now your, your grafted area hurts where you do have nerve endings, but also now the area where they took your skin from also is in severe amounts of pain, you know, because of that. It sounds crazy, but her surgeon was able to take all of her grafted skin from her leg that was burned because he only wanted her to have one leg that was scarred, um, you know, which for somebody in that condition is a, a very important thing. It, it, seeing someone you love in that amount of pain, it, it definitely changes you. There were times where she was just in so much pain and in sensory overload that all my wife and I could do is sit there. We couldn't even text somebody on our phone because the sound of our finger hitting our screen was too overpowering for her. Mm. And they had to commit to turn all of the sounds off on all of the equipment and keep the door shut. You know, she was getting enough pain medication that could kill an elephant. Not even joking. She was getting fentanyl, ketamine, Dilaudid, and that was just taking the edge off. You know, there were some things that were just, just haunted me. Mm. And um, there was one point where I was with her in the room and she... You know, she wanted me to stand next to her and she had her head in my chest and she was crying. She was just saying over and over, dad, I was on fire. Dad, I was on fire. Dad, I was on fire. That was, that's the stuff of nightmares. And um, I had to go see a therapist myself because I was not able to sleep because of that. It was really tough. found a therapist. I got lucky. The first guy I went to was like the perfect therapist for me. He, he really sort of helped me get through that, but... Seeing someone you love go through that is, and be in that amount of pain, it, it was really, it was really difficult. But I will say that M did not want to be in the hospital. She did not have a "woe is me" attitude. Her thinking basically was, "I have to do what they tell me to do because I want to go home. I don't want, I don't want this to define me." And she was out of the hospital in 14 days. Uh, they were expecting her to be over there for probably 20 to 21 days at least. So she got out of the hospital a week early. Very good. And the other thing they don't tell you is when you are recovering from burns is when you get home, you have to do your own wound care. And that requires cutting off skin, just all sorts of stuff you don't want to go through. In movies and TV shows, when they show somebody that's burned, that's actually not what it looks like. You, you don't really want to know what it looks like. <laughs> it's worse. <laughs> but she was like, I'm not going to let this keep me in the hospital. And even though she still has a lot of issues uh, because of it, it would be strange if she didn't. Honestly, she doesn't like to use the stove or the oven, which I don't blame her. <laughs> but she has said on more than one occasion that um, she was going to live her life and she was going to make this fire be her bitch. <laughs> <laughs> she, she has had a pretty dark and twisted sense of humor over it um, and I'm, I'm going to share a couple of them just because it shows you that you can go through something that's horrible and you can use humor even if it's dark humor to help you get through it uh, for example she said whilst 
still in the ICU. She turned to us, turned to us and said, Hey, you guys, you know that this burn is going to cost me an arm and a leg. Wow. And you're just like, ah, Emily. And then she said, Hey, I want my new nickname to be KFC because I'm just a breast shy of, you know, I got a wing, a leg, a thigh, and I'm a breast shy of having a full bucket. Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> Emily, she'll be here all week. Ladies and gentlemen, Emily, she'll be here all week. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then my other two favorites are, she said that going forward in life, anytime she had a friend that was going through a bad breakup, she was going to tell them that she sympathized because she too has been burned. (laughs) And then of course, this one is my absolute favorite, even though it is a dig at every male in the United States, possibly the world. She got home from the hospital. She turns to me and she said, you know, dad, after these last two weeks and all of the pain that I've been in, I think I can finally understand what a man goes through when he has the flu. And I was like, you're going to be all right, kid. Right. Clearly, (laughs) clearly she's going to be all right. Once you can keep a good sense of humor, you'll be fine. That she went through that ordeal and still found some type of morbid sense of humor. Good job, Emily. But um, yeah. Your son, he did something quite amazing himself. He spoke before yeah. an, uh, an amazing crowd at one point in his life. When my son was in the Air Force and 20 years old, uh, well, when he was in the Air Force, he was a GPS satellite operator. And um, he was one at one point, I think only like 50 people in the planet could at that when he was in operate a GPS satellite. So it's a, it's a pretty exclusive club of the people that can do that. You know, he has Asperger's and autism, and you would think, well, is the military something that someone with that could sort of handle or like or whatever? He actually preferred it because it gave him a sense of structure because it was, you know, this time A, B, C, D. And so for him, it worked out really well because of the structure aspect of it. But when he was 20 years old, he was asked to speak by the commander of the U.S. Air Force Space Command, who is now actually the commander of the U.S. Space Force to go to Washington, D.C. and give a speech to members of Congress, both uh, representatives and senators and the Joint Chiefs of Staff to explain the capabilities of what GPS can and can't do, which is pretty cool. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know, and I was like, dude, if you can give a speech to that, any job interview for the rest of your life should be easy breezy. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Good job, man. I love it. Good job to him. Jack, why do you keep your towel in fatherhood? You have to. I love my kids. My kids are my kids are my legacy. Whether I want them to be or not, they are. The wife and I, I'm I'm just going to flat out lie. We had like 12 hours of passion and my kids came after each one of those 12 hour marathon sessions of passion. And they're my legacy. And I want my kids to be happy and for them to be happy I need to be the best dad that I can be and I need to always try to work and strive to be the father that they need and that's going to be different at different times in their life and it's different with different kids you know your kids are always going to need something from you even when they're adults your kids still need you and I need to be the dad that they need me to be and I strive to be that that guy I'll do whatever I can for them because yeah. they wouldn't be here without me. They didn't ask to be born. So the least I can do is make their life the best that I can. 
So, Jack, before we hop out of here, if there's any last words you want to give to fathers out there, my man, the floor is yours. Try to be humble. When you're a parent, it's not easy to own up to your mistakes to your children because we want our kids to think, you know, that as a parent, we know all and we know everything. But we don't. A lot of times we're just stumbling around trying to do the best that we can. And if you make a mistake, tell your kids you made a mistake because that'll teach them to own up to their mistakes. And in the end, your goal is to make them, you know, the best person that they can be. And you just have to, you know, strive. And they're going to be set back sometimes. And you just got to realize, I just got to put one foot in front of the other and and keep going and I can't not keep that in mind so always always keep that in mind your kids are your legacy you got to do what's best for them if you have to sacrifice for yourself you have to sacrifice for yourself and just you know just be there your kids want your time that's what they want your time hang out with your kids you don't have to do 15 different sports you could do 10 sports just be there for your kids hang out with them they want your time well, there you have it, good people. Jack just dropped it for you. As for my fathers out there, hopefully you heed the lesson that he just gave to you on what it is to try to understand this thing called fatherhood. Yo, y'all, I'm going to make sure that I drop all of Jack's information out there. He's gonna ha- He has his website. He has also his, his podcast and everything. Jack, tell him about the podcast a little quickly for me, please. Alrighty, I'm using to an ADD mind. I talk to my friends. And, well, not just friends, anybody, about various interesting things that happened in their life. It could be positive things that happened. It could be negative things that happened. There's a lesson to be learned in everybody's life. And I feel that something has happened to one of my friends that somebody else will find inspiration from or the strength to go through whatever it is they're going through. So we talk about all sorts of stuff on that on uh, Musings of an ADD Mind. And then uh, with Kenyatta and Jack Save the World, we talk about a lot of current affairs. Our goal is to get people to talk to each other and also, important, listen to each other. Kenyatta and I have known each other since fifth grade. We're both military brats. Talk about all sorts of stuff, current affairs. We'll deep dive into the history of something that sort of shows how we ended up where we are today. And our goal is to just make the world a better place, as we like to say, one podcast at a time. Beautiful. Love it right there. So, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to put all that stuff in the description box so you'll be able to go ahead and check out Jack and also Kenyatta. Hi, Kenyatta. Jack, this round is officially over. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your time. So, particularly to my fathers, continue to keep up the good work. If you still don't have it all together, it's all right. Because... Not everybody got together, but once you still put in some effort, those kids and your child will always appreciate it. Wipe the blood, wipe the sweat, wipe the tears, but whatever you do, don't throw in your towel. This is your man, Aunt Boogie. We will check you when we check you. We'll see you when we see you. We are out of here. Later.